0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Radio and this is Patty Holstrand and this is our Sunday edition, brand new edition of a brand new show. I'm going to turn it over to the new host
2: for Sunday, Donald Jocks. Welcome everybody, pop culture information. Welcome, this is pop culture news and commentary. Tonight we're going to look at What is Arizona pop culture? What kind of things that those of us in pop culture do enjoy and experience with it? Things like uh, uh, cosplay, gaming, uh, some of the businesses that support it. It's a lot about the fans. What's going on? What's coming up? We'll be talking about gatherings and conventions as well as news related to happenings around the state. Some of what we'll be talking about in our first hour We'll also include some of the things that maybe some people don't know about yet, what conventions are coming up, what conventions may have actually passed into history these days. So we'll be talking a little bit about this, and hopefully um, some of our listeners will be dialing in, letting us know what's going on. We'll be talking to some of them, and we look forward to talking to you all. Oh, we have a caller already. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you guys doing tonight? We're doing real well. Um, and who's this? This is Song River. Hey, Song. How you doing? Hey,
1: Don. I'm doing good. Uh, good job on the new show. It sounds like this is going to be something really interesting <laughs> and um, needed here in the Phoenix area.
2: I think so. Uh, we were talking the other night about some of the the scope of what we might want to do, and when I was telling Patty what I wanted to do, I said, you know, we, we really need to focus on what's going on in the state of Arizona. There's a lot of conventions and pop culture out there. And, you know, some of the publications like New Times, The Republic, and, and Nirvana, different things like this, they, they, their scope is way huge. Nobody's sure. looking at just what's coming on locally. And, yeah, you know, sure, it's sure. and you're actually kind of a part of this because you've started up your own show here on Blog Talk, just what last week or was it the week before?
1: That was last week. We had our, our beta test, as we I think we like to call it, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it, it was it was uh, you know a learning lesson. We you know we, there's uh, always things you have to learn as you go along, and um, it was good and uh, a lot of we had a lot of feedback and um, everybody embraced it locally. Um, especially, in, but we had listeners um, contact us from Virginia uh, and up in Oregon, and even a couple people up in Canada. So um, you know, we've got people tuning in outside of Arizona to hear about Arizona and some of the things that's going on in the the, uh, the capital uh, of Arizona, which is you know, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that's Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in this show is to embrace that—that that, you know, popular culture isn't just the few things that I mentioned. Uh, it isn't just cosplay and games and conventions. It's also the music, and your show uh, brings a lot of that out. Uh, and, and as I recall—and forgive me for showing my age here—but I remember the days when what we would call pop pop culture music today was in the olden days called Underground Music.
1: Yes, actually, um, I was having a discussion just last evening with um, a young a young man by the, that goes by the name Chris Mars. He actually produces a um, kind of a, a late-night chaos, uh, as he puts it, radio show podcast that he does, where he brings in all these different types of guests and people that are... Every, everything underneath the umbrella of pop culture, and then he also throws in politics. And uh-huh. with him was a gentleman by the name of Harrison Tyler who has a band here locally that they've put together. And I believe in, the, the name of the band is Radio Siren, if I remember correctly. Wow. But that was something we were talking about is when we say pop culture, are we really saying what used to be said during the earlier days of the 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s, that time period was either called alternative or underground. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always been these buzzwords that that we've utilized. um, But
2: the thing about the buzzwords is that they only apply to the younger half of the audience mm. that has propagated that buzzword. That's I mean, true. You, that is true. you mentioned the 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 sixties and the seventies. It was indeed that younger crowd that was referring to pop culture and so forth, and it took years before the popular media picked it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and, and I, I think we're it, seeing a resurgence in that.
1: I I, re, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think we are seeing a resurgence of independent creative thinking. Um, about two years ago, there was a gentleman by the name of Robbie Brown. He and his um, co-founder partner Marcus Manley, who just recently passed, um, founded a organization called We Labs out in Long Beach. And that was the whole purpose of forming We Labs was they they saw this this collective out there of independent artists from all kinds of different genres and styles, all searching to become communitized. I think I just made up a word. I'm not even sure that that's a word.
2: That's, that's, it's a new one on me, but I, I kind of I like the sound of that.
1: And now, I think explain what you mean what by doing.
2: communitized.
1: We're looking to come together to network and help each other as a community grow and succeed. And when you talk to a lot of the artists and all the different pockets of genres, they're not making any money if maybe a pence here and there. Mainly, really, they're, they're doing a lot of their work for free. And I think they feel like, okay, the economy hasn't done real well. Globally, right. things are restless. And if you look, I'm sure you know this already, Don. You're, you're very studious. Um, if you look at history, and every time – Anything like this happens globally, where there's a downturn economically and there's unrest, there seems to be this "quote unquote" underground of artists that come together as a collective and work as a community to bring about. Oh, what is? I wouldn't necessarily bring about a piece, but to bring back maybe some an element that we we've been missing because we got so caught up and keeping up with the Joneses and having our 5,000-square-foot houses and our two Lexuses and our vacations in Europe.
2: Um, Well, you know, there's another factor. There's another factor that that I have been complaining about of late, um, and I know I've heard it in writing circles. when People talk Mm -hmm. about books and e-books, and with the conjunction we've seen between uh, the digital world of the web and the Internet and e-books and digital books and even now uh, digital music uh, with the new – even now streaming music is, is really coming into its own. These things are creating um, a really strong downturn in prices for yeah. a lot of the creative work. I mean, music got hit first when Napster came out. And then that rolled around and now a lot of these companies are working out deals with the record companies so that the record companies can still make money and people won't steal it but it's it's just a big quagmire. Uh, DVDs going through the same thing uh, now mm-hmm. Netflix is streaming, but at least Netflix and Hulu and, and these companies figured out a way to to get ahead of the lawsuit boondoggle. <laughs> right and right. actually make it work but now we're seeing a new thrust uh, Netflix and Hulu are headed up against the big boys starting to encroach on their their uh, areas ABC NBC they've all got now where you can go and watch TV shows on their websites
0: yes
1: so they do. and of course and, and
2: Blockbuster has suffered uh, Netflix yeah. or, uh, Redbox is suffering but um, there's
1: been a lot of places take a hit you recall going back to the turn of the century um, from the 1800s to the 1900s, and we went into the Industrial hey, Revolution. Hey, hey,
2: hey, 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 wait, 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 be fair. I wasn't around that long ago. I know I'm old, but I'm not quite that old.
1: Go <laughs> back to the history books. <laughs> Let me rephrase oh, okay. that. If, oh, if right. you go back and, you, and one studies that, that time period, we had the, this same influx of, of a situation to where we had to learn how to adjust globally to a new way of doing things. And I think, if, if my history is correct, that we're looking at doing the same thing stepping into the 21st century. And we've all got to find a way to find our niche to make um, a living at what we love to do and still have it be something that the common person can buy. As you mentioned, music. Stop and think about it. When you can go um, on, um, not iPhone, um, what's the... Um, iTunes. iTunes, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, the premier
0: service you go, today.
1: <laughs> you go on iTunes, and for $1.99, you can purchase a song. What does the artist actually make off of that? And talking to my 15-year-old daughter... She, what she's saying is that the bands are making more of their money off of, A, touring, and B, merchandising. Merchandising and marketing themselves has become huge money in order for them to make up well, what a CD price used to get them.
2: And here's the thing to remember, and this much I know from a little bit of reading I've done. Now, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I do know this from reading, and that is, is that a lot of the bigger bands, when you look at groups like KISS, uh, Aerosmith, uh, or even the Beatles, when you look at where they actually made their money, yeah, they made a boatload of money in, in album sales, but most of their money came in concert sales. These these bands are always on tour. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it takes a heavy load on their family lives, what little they have, but right. the the tours, and as you point out, merchandising is such a big thing today. Uh, I remember Patty and I were talking and have been talking. In fact, she runs – I know she runs some classes periodically for people to help market their books and things like this. And one of the things I talked about at one session one time was the idea of merchandising your book. And this is true when you look at movies. The Star Wars became the king of merchandising. Uh, Movies and TVs – Look at what's happening with um, oh, uh, Walking Dead. There yes. are action figures. There mm-hmm. are DVDs. There are toys. And, and I even think I saw a game the other day. And a it, video yes, game no the last. I, I, right.
1: I think you're right. I saw
2: the announcement of a video game for The Walking Dead. And so I'm sitting here thinking, like, you know, it's just incredible what artists really need to get through and go through in order to actually make a decent living at this stuff. One of the things when I first started writing was the realization that an author doesn't make money writing. Right. He really doesn't. He makes it in speaking engagements. He makes Mm -hmm. it in um, derivatives from sales of DVDs and things like this that they may do at concert sites. They make it from if they've got some form of uh, merchandising, they'll make a little bit there. But for authors, the big money maker is movies and TV.
0: Yes,
1: it really is.
2: And so is, is, it's,
1: just, it's changed and we've got to learn, as old people got to learn how to change with the times and help those coming up um, learn the the ropes because it it is a new way, it's a new age, it's a new time and uh, marketing is crucial. And networking is crucial. And um, I, you know, I've, I've been surprised in talking to Patty how many people don't get okay. networking. They right. just don't understand well, that you whole know, premise. You,
2: you bring up another point, uh, the old guard as opposed to the new kids on the block and some of the things that come into play there. Um, I'm currently chairman of this year's Leprechaun Fan Convention. Mm-hmm. And... This is my first year being full chair. I've been involved with the organization for several years now in different capacities. And, you know, one of the things that I really struggle to understand is is why aren't fan conventions busting at the seams like they were 20 or even 40 years ago when Leprechaun actually started? And, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. It's the idea that the conventions aren't changing with the times.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: adjusting in marketing efforts, adjusting in the way they handle memberships, adjusting in the way that they um, reach out to people. Uh, so many people in pop culture today are looking for entertainment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: 40, 30, 40 years ago when people went to a convention, they weren't looking for entertainment. They were looking to hook up with their favorite, fan, uh, favorite writers, authors, artists. It was about the connection to be made, much like what you said about networking.
1: Building those memories um, when you go to a convention, I still think, especially for families when they come in, I still I think that that building that memory with your little boy or your little girl when you bring them to a, a convention, I still think that that's there. But mm-hmm. when people have to decide, because we're seeing this in the music industry as well, what you just brought up, Um, people have to decide are they going to pay their bills this month or are they going to have enough money to put in their gas tank to drive to go see a live band or to go to a Comic-Con or even take their kid to the local comic book store. They're having to make hard choices.
2: Yeah. But, you know, I I look back in my own history, and I've I've been here a while, these choices, I think, for a lot of people, especially young people, have been around for quite a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: i think I think we all struggle to make those choices and to make them decent so that the kids that we take to those do have pleasant memories to draw on. Uh, it's mm-hmm. those memories that carry us forward as adults into going back to conventions and things like this. I, you know i I'm a newbie to quote pop culture. Um, it was Patty that invited me to go to a leprechaun convention. Five, six, seven years ago. Wow, time flies. That
1: evil woman.
2: <laughs> yes. And he drugged me, kicking and screaming, and I got into the hall, Yo, and here tell. were all these costumes. <laughs> these, there were all these costumes, and this life and energy. And um, the sad thing is, is I've seen Leprechaun, I've seen Coppercon. they they've, not. Been as heavily attended over the years. That attendance has dropped um, it has. this year, and the other things are as I've been looking this year as chair, and I'm faced with the challenges of how do you attract young folks to a convention that, for heaven forbid, it's been around 40 years. That's older than most of these kids are. Yeah, and yeah. we yeah. A- we actually talked to some people. We talked to her son, all of. 18, 19 years old, somewhere in that range. And he made some suggestions. We tried some of the things. You've come on board with the Wad media and really helped us out in a lot of ways and helped us understand as well how to reach people. And I think one of the things that I was actually going to bring up tonight is is I actually went, went, before the show started, I was out looking at some of the websites for the various conventions. Uh, We looked at, uh, as a part of... Um, pop culture, a lot of times we forget that it is more than music, costumes, games, and fans. Uh, One -hmm. of the things that comes to mind is, is that the Arizona Dreaming Conference coming up in May is about Arizona's first romance reader event. These are fans. It's pop culture. They're going to this convention to meet writers, they're going to to re meet people in the industry. They're going to hobnob with their other writers and so forth. Uh we've put a link up on the the, the site. Uh check it out. Um, we've also got things like um Phoenix FearCon, which actually, if I remember right, yeah. took a hiatus for a year or two. And now they're back. And so that's exciting. Yeah. Um, they've got a nice website. Um, one of the things I really wanted to, to talk a little bit about tonight was something new that's coming down the pike. And we've got a great example here in the Valley um, that, and uh, interestingly enough, I know some of the backstory about this, but not all. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about is MaricopaCon. This is their Ooh. second year. And MaricopaCon mm-hmm. is, is basically a, a primarily a gaming convention, but the fellow that runs it, Jason um, Youngdale, was dissatisfied with the way the conventions were being run at the time he was participating in one with Leprechaun uh, two, three years ago. And uh-huh. it didn't turn out as well as he'd hoped, and he kicked some ideas around for a while, and then... He discovered Kickstarter. Now, Jason did something that I hadn't seen before. He fired up a Kickstarter, put some nice stuff out there, had a great idea. He did double what he expected. Mm -hmm. He fully funded his convention before he even went to the hotel.
1: Kickstarter and Indigo, called Indigo. I think I'm pronouncing it correct. And there's a few others out there have been an interesting phenomenon that has tied into this new century way of mm-hmm. being able to raise funds to for, for artists of all kinds, you know. You've got authors using Kickstarter to publish books. You've got right. Shelby Robertson. Shelby Robertson's used Kickstarter to produce um, his whole new comic, Illustrated Series 94, um, I've I've seen it I've seen it used so much, well, and people are willing to put into
2: it. Yeah, you've seen music do this. We've seen mm-hmm. movies do this. In fact, uh, uh, we did an article on uh, Locker thirteen, who also mm-hmm. did it, and they did it successfully. So you got yes. music, you got films, you got books, you got uh, now conventions are using crowdsourcing, crowdfunding to be able to fund their startup, and then to those who invest, they get all sorts of benefits from they copies of books, they get DVDs, uh-huh. they get um, tickets to the convention, uh, special dice, there's, there's merchandising, and it's really intriguing to see this new model take shape in pop uh-huh. culture. Uh, because then, it is, um... it, it becomes a part of pop culture.
1: It, it does. You, you just you spawned a little bit of a thought going in my head here. The old <laughs> adage, the old yeah, you spawned the old adage of "United we stand, divided we fall." Uh huh. Occurred has occurred more than once in this country, and perhaps oh, yeah. every time we hit a new a new century and we go through a, a new adjustment. We go through a little bit of this time of united, we stand divided, we fall, and we've got all these, we've got fractured religion, we've got fractured culture, we've got fractured food, we've got fractured people, we've got fractured corporations. Then something like, like this, Kickstarter and Indigo and the other crowd fundraising type things, come and take place, and all of a sudden you've got artists now connecting with the masses so that the masses feel like they're a part of something bigger that they can't go out and attain, but they can be a part of it. Maybe, just maybe, this is the way out of taking everything being fractured and recreating it into a whole again.
2: It very well could be, because as you, you mentioned that, I, I, it prompted a thought in me, so we're cross-spawning here. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what dawned on me is I was remembering back in history and recalling that in, it was in the mid-50s when Elvis Presley came along and he started doing a lot of extra concerts. I mean, people had done concerts at state fairs and stuff like that, but it wasn't until the, the people that started showing up in the 50s when they tapped into radio. And it was like the dam burst, and you had popular kid music that all the parents and grandparents hated, and nobody was allowed to go to concerts because who knew what devil worship was going on and all this kind of good stuff. But we can actually go back a little bit further to see another conjunction that was in the late, oh, I'd say 1800s, early 1900s because when radio actually was born mm. you had live radio you had the movies kicking in just getting started you had uh stars like charlie chaplin showing up in a matter of a decade um and then you had all of these movie these musicians starting to create vinyl albums or vinyl singles in those days, on the old 78s, that were getting produced and delivered to the consumer market. And this was way back in the 20s and 30s. So we had a conjunction there, and artists actually started to make some serious money. And not just the singers, but some of the writers started to actually make some serious money. Because before then, the writers didn't get much credit at all if mm-hmm. anything.
0: That's very true.
1: That's very true. So,
2: we so had this it gets back evolution. to community, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Where you've got some, uh, and I'll use the term loosely, technology that affords pop culture to
0: mm-hmm.
2: evolve. You know, That's uh, what we're
1: doing. We're, we're evolving. We can
2: come forward in time and we look at the appearance of cable TV back in the, what, 70s? I want to say uh-huh. where VH1 no MTV shows up on the scene.
1: Yeah, that was and in the now 80s. we've
2: got the explosion of music videos.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: that was that another conjunction.
1: 1981 or 82. Mark Goodman yeah. comes on, uh-huh. and oh wow, yeah, that totally changed everything again.
2: It did, and uh, then it was everything was into big budget things. I mean, just look at Thriller. Michael Jackson's yeah. his whole repertoire of videos, just phenomenal uh-huh. stuff. So, we're, but, we're stepping
1: uh, into a new era. That, there's no doubt about that. And you can either fight it all you want and pretend like it doesn't exist, but I'm sorry, it's here. It does exist, and and we've got to, like I said, we've got to figure out how to how to step forward as artists and help oh. each other through the keyhole yeah. so we got to the yeah. other
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I, um, I really want to thank you for coming and joining us this, this evening. This has been a great start cool. to the to this show. Uh, you've well, brought a lot you. of stuff out. And, um, you know, it's a lot of food for thought, a lot of food for thought. And, you know, just for all the listeners out there, a couple of things. Um, Song River is, um, tell us about yourself, Song River. You started at the beginning. Tell us again about yourself. You're doing, you're with a group, right? Yeah, Carol um,
1: Pacey. Um, I had met Carol Pacey um, la- at the end of last year through a mutual friend of ours that plays with her, Andy, Andy Baronda. And um, I at least slaughter Andy's last name. I apologize, Andy. And um, I just I got to talking to her, and she had mentioned that she had been on a radio program, a radio show, a couple years ago, and some things happened. And um, I said, "Hey," I said what do you think we do a radio show? I said, I want to be on radio, I said, in December of 2013. And everybody kind of looked at me and my family, and they're like, yeah, right, Mom. Yeah, you're always wanting to do something, you big dreamer. And um, I'm just like, no, I'm going to do this. And then we went to Patty, and Patty said, let's do it, and here we are. And it's the Hey Girls show, and we're going to be, our next one over at the Ice House Tavern is slated for May 21st. Uh, I think it's from seven to nine, if I remember correctly. But um, I know you guys will keep keep everybody posted as to what's going on.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. And and also, as I understand it, you're going to be at Leprechaun uh, doing photography for people, right? That's what I hear. Yes.
1: At least that (laughs) or my evil doppelganger is going to be over at the Leprechaun doing photography. I have to put her away in the closet every so often. She's so obnoxious. Yeah. But yes,
2: well, yes, I will I've be got, there at
1: the Leprechaun.
2: We look forward to seeing you, Song. And again, thanks for you calling too. in. You thank have a you, good Don. night. You Bye-bye. too,
1: and uh, thank you for the show.
2: You bet. We've got another caller. We're going to welcome uh, Krista Crawford. For those of you, uh, in fact, you know, I'm just the newbie here. But I'll tell you what, Krista, welcome to the show. You are an awesome lady.
3: Oh, well, thank you.
2: <laughs> I've been looking you up on the web, and I see not only are you a cosplay costumer, wh- what's the right way to say that? Is it cosplay-er? Um, well, it, it, it cosplay- is usually
3: cosplay. Yeah. It's, um, it's cosplay is like the action or the act of dressing up in costume and acting as a character. Um, okay. And then they're usually called just cosplayers if you're uh-huh. a player of cosplay.
2: Okay. Awesome. um. Well, we're all about pop culture on this show. This is our first show. You're my second caller. This is awesome. Thank you.
3: <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, I was just you know, listening to the song. She's, she's one of my favorite
2: people. She's, she's neat. It was great talking to her. We, we got in some interesting conversation about pop culture. Um, I noticed, mm-hmm. too, that you actually operate a business here in the Valley, uh, Graphic art I Printing do. and Pop Culture Apparel. What's it called? What's the name of the business?
3: Um, the name of the business is Hero and Villain Designs. We do like graphic art, like 11 by 17 full-bleed prints for artists and photographers. And we do smaller prints, too. But that's,
0: uh-huh. And
3: then um, also we do clothing, like skirts and dresses and shirts and, and accessories that are all based in the pop culture world, like what's happening, what people are liking.
2: I was noticing, I was on somewhere, I think it was your website, or maybe I went to your Etsy store. And I noticed you've got uh, a large selection of, you called it mermaid uh, skirts and stuff. Uh, I was intrigued by that. I, I'd never seen that before. Is that Are these fabrics that you actually design? Or are these things that you put together from pieces that are already out there? She didn't respond. Did I lose her? Did I lose her? I did not hear a response. Okay, we lost you there for a minute. Yeah,
3: it disconnected me. I apologize. I don't know why. Oh, you did that? It
2: blame it on our. Me. It was really our, weird. Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna blame our engineer here. She's uh, falling <laughs> down on the job, surfing the web. But uh, so I asked about the mermaid outfit, the mermaid cloth, and you yeah. were going to answer about that.
3: Um, the mermaid cloth, it, it, uh, I usually call it either mermaid or dragon. Um, we get it from right. New York. It's just kind of our fantasy. It's our big thing this year, shorts and leggings and dresses.
2: Uh-huh. It's an awesome design. I, I haven't seen anything like this ever that I can recall. And being the dirty old man that I am, slim ladies in outfits like this always attract my attention.
0: <laughs> <And> even <laughs>
2: So at, at cons and events like this. So mm-hmm. how did you get into this type of a business? And particularly, um, it relates to pop culture because it supports people doing costumes, right?
3: Yes. So do they, a lot they, of the they stuff take this? And
2: they'll, do... they'll... Go ahead. Go ahead. A lot of the um, stuff you do.
3: A lot of the stuff I make can also be like, has been used. In costumes, a lot of people wear my leggings and do, like, hipster aerial. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, like, a lot of the clothing, like the dress lines I have, represent characters that they dress up as in their costumes. And then in everyday normal wear, they can wear these dresses that have their favorite characters on them.
2: I see that. Yeah, because what, what is this one called? No, it's cat woman. Oh, it's the Catwoman and uh, Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. that's that's a neat outfit you know here's a question for you i've noticed recently that uh just like within the last year that a lot of costumers cosplay uh, how did you say the right way to say that is cosplayers cosplayers okay um are actually beginning to derive uh different costumes off of existing characters for example, the most obvious one that I remember seeing was uh, uh, a female arrow or a female Batman and a male Catman. Uh, yes. Things that I've seen uh, out there where they're, they're they're changing things up, which I think is kind of neat. How, how does that affect your business and the costumes that you do? Because you do three or four at least. I, I've seen you.
3: Yes, I, I have a handful of costumes. I've got three or four that are my main costume. I think that people are just reaching out I mean there are a huge list of costumes but there's also a lot of cosplayers and most of the people that cosplay really want to make unique costumes and they want to show off their talents in design and it there's a lot of female and male cosplayers that like other characters and they want to portray them but they might be female and so they decide to make a female version of, you know, Arrow. And so it kind of just allows them to feel that character but also still stay, you know, in their own sex.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Gender, I think, is the other word. Uh, Gender, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we want to be PC correct here. Um, but, well, here's, here's a couple things. What, what are your thoughts, and I don't know how much you've, of the earlier part of the show you heard, about the changes that are happening in popular culture overall? Uh, you actually run a business here in the Valley. You support popular culture with costumes and, and costuming materials, and yet you also are a part of pop culture itself being a cosplayer. Now, mm-hmm. uh, and you, you also, I, I see you've got uh, some of your prints are available too, which is really cool. You, you do these costumes uh, nice justice. Um, how do you see the changes that we've been seeing, for example, a lot of people are using Kickstarter and Indiegogo to front uh, a lot of things. I even saw somebody. Um, I wonder if anybody's tried to do a, to fund a costume this way, which is something kind of
3: mind. You know, and I've and I've seen that, and I've I've heard. I think Kickstarter is a great program as far as if you have an idea and you don't have enough money to initiate the idea, but you think that it's something that people will like. So you start a Kickstarter, and it is something people will like. I think that it's a great way. There's a lot of people that just don't have the funds, but they have the creativity, especially artists. I mean, artists are really underpaid most of the time, and they don't have the funds to get their ideas out there. So I think Kickstarter is a great program. As far as costumes go, to me, uh, I mean, there's not a big profession in costuming. To me, it's more of a hobby or an interest. Right, And I just don't see Kickstarter being a costuming, you know, a place to facilitate, to get money to build a costume.
2: It would be challenging to come up with the various different rewards for backers and, and things like that, other than prints when the costume's done, I suppose. But, yeah,
3: do you yeah. think
2: Indiegogo, Kickstarter, and these other crowdfunding things um, are facilitating pop culture?
3: Um, I do you think, think so. Helping, I think, do you think that they, I think they're I think they're helping. I think they're helping grow the community because it's giving people that didn't have the ability or the chance to get their ideas out there or get a new comic started or you know, start a mm-hmm. new business or help other people grow. It's now giving them the ability to start their business without having to go out and apply for a loan and worry about getting word out about it and right. building it up and then paying it off.
2: Ah, okay. Interesting insights. Um, what do you think about some of – what changes have you seen in the past few years? You've been doing this how long now? Your um, business.
3: Really in the comic – my business, um, the print business we've been doing for about a year now, but I've been sewing for years um,
0: uh,
2: and, for myself and, have and for
3: friends. And then
2: Okay. Hmm? Now, have you seen a lot of changes in the pop culture, particularly in cosplay over those years, as things change? Um,
3: Yeah, I have. There's been a huge growth of interest. I mean, there's always been an interest in cosplaying and in Uh costumes and in pop culture. I just think that it's really taken off, and people are really being able to find an interest, find a character they can relate with, expand their creativity skills, um, I think it's really brought a lot of people into the culture that had no, you know, not didn't a lot of knowledge about it in the before.
2: Right. Okay. Do, um, I, I I wonder because this is an area where um, I'm an old fogey. Costumes are expensive mm-hmm. in my mind, and of course, Costumes just are the in- expensive. <laughs> and the investment to get it the way you want. Um, I remember Mm -hmm. several years ago, somebody suggested, or somebody took me to the Renaissance Festival out in, uh, Mm -hmm. where is that? It's Gold Canyon area, I think, out Uh, east of Phoenix.
3: Yeah, Apache Junction.
2: Right. And uh, I went one year. I went a second year. Third year, I thought, you know what? I'm going to make me a costume. So I threw together Mm -hmm. some old scraps and made myself a little Druid costume. And I showed up over there and... It was weird, because people started coming up to me and asking me questions about the Renaissance Festival, like, where are the bathrooms, and where do I go to eat, and where is this, and where is that? (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, I don't work here. I got no clue. (laughs) (laughs) And and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. I did get quite Mm -hmm. a few compliments on the costume, despite how simple it was, but, you know, druid is a druid is a Mm -hmm. druid, so, you know, that's pretty easy. But um, <laughs> there, it was just strange how it opens opportunities to talk with people and to uh, break the ice, as we used to say, and start a yes, conversation. Yes,
3: it, it does. Think, when you're in costume, I think it helps you and other people be able to approach you better. I mean, a, a little kid's not going to want to walk up to a stranger but when I'm wearing a superhero costume, or when my husband is wearing Captain America, I mean, you get little kids that run up and like want to give you high fives, want to talk to you, want to say how cool you are and how that you're their you're their role model.
2: Ah, well, that brings up a question then. Uh, if mm-hmm. he's doing Captain America and you're doing some of the other characters that, and your costumes are, I mean, they're awesome. They're they're very mm-hmm. close to the comic book characters and these type of things. Do you either you or your husband ever worry about copyright issues or anything associated Um, with the comic book groups or the characters, owners of the characters or anything like that?
3: You know, it's come up, and I I think that with making the costumes, I don't know how that would fall as far as copyright goes. I mean, if we were making the costumes, I mean, and, and... Saying it was our character and then selling the costume saying it was our character and our design, I think that would uh-huh. infringe upon theirs. But we wear them, you know, to wear them to the comic cons to and celebrate. to conventions. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I mean, it, and we both are part of the Arizona Avengers, which is the local um, community group here, and so they they do a lot of like charity events and like helping kids learn to read. And so. I, I don't think even if it did infringe on copyright that Marvel would have an issue with people dressing up as their characters to help kids learn to read.
2: Okay. So as long as the things are nonprofit, mm-hmm. it actually probably helps them because it helps people see the characters and things like that. That's interesting. I not thought of it that way. I mean, way.
3: that's my opinion of it.
2: Uh-huh. So, okay. You're – okay. Now, as I understand it also, and I'm giving us a great plug here – Leprechaun 2014 is coming up at the end of the month, and you're actually going to be mm-hmm. our local industry, art. how did we phrase that, local art industry guest of honor, right? Is that what we Yes, I was
3: very, that is what they said. I was completely surprised, <laughs> completely shocked. I had no idea when they contacted me. It was probably yeah. one of the best things I had heard in a, in a while.
2: Well, when Patty chaired last year's Leprechaun Convention, mm-hmm. She thought outside the box when it came to our art guest last year. And she approached yeah. Blizzard, specifically one of the... What was it? The coast? Wizards of the Coast. I'm sorry. And talked about bringing John Hetty down. Now, John Shindehetti is like the head of... The art he is the art director for their okay. comics and stuff. And so we brought him in as... Art, direct art, industry, guest of honor. And when we were looking around at somebody to invite for this year's Leprechaun, we caught sight of you. And the fact is, you do more than just cosplay. And you do more than just run a business. You actually have found a way to blend the two together. And that was what caught our eye. And that's what we thought it represents some of the changes that are happening in pop culture.
3: Um, Yes, I, you know, I think there is a lot of changes, and I think people want to represent what they like um, on an everyday basis. I mean, I can't just dress up as Wonder Woman and go to the grocery store. You kind of, it's it's out of place. (laughs) But... But I can wear you know, a dress that's got Wonder Woman print on it, and people will say, oh, that's so cool. Where did you get that? And I said, oh, I make it. I run a business. Here's my business card. Uh-huh. And they're like, I would like to wear something like that.
2: It, it reminds me back of shows I would see in, and of course I'm dating myself here, in the late 60s, <laughs> where we would go pester our parents for Batman or Superman pajamas. You couldn't oh, get yes. t-shirts back then. It was always the pajamas, and um, that was our cosplay in those days. And, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, I can remember many a times threatening to put a cape on and go jump off the roof. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> I never did try that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then you'd end up in the hospital, and we'd have to deal with you there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, I've and cosplay, as I've learned the hard way this year, is not limited to existing characters within uh, any of the comic book universes. Uh, I know through the conventions I'm seeing uh, fantasy characters uh, Mm -hmm. that haven't appeared in films. I'm seeing uh, characters from pirates that are building characters not necessarily related to any of the pirate films we've had over the years. And the variation is just incredible. People's imagination seems like it's mm-hmm. almost exploding and just, I mean, it's just going everywhere. And you represent, part of the reason we wanted to, to invite you was your business supports pop culture by offering things to help people think outside the box. Uh, mm-hmm. It never dawned on me to get cloth with a pattern of either dragon scales or, or mermaid scales. I mean, it's just that's awesome. And from... <laughs> From your Etsy page, I was sitting here thinking, you know, that, that can make an interesting pair of pajamas. And and I could see all sorts of other ideas of clothing items. Um, and, of course, being a guy, I mean, my mind is wandering all over the place. Uh,
3: <laughs> and
2: I love the picture you've got there of, of the, the, the pants you made for the little baby.
3: Oh, yes, yeah, so, that's that, my that, daughter. That um...
2: That's your daughter, Okay. So she's getting started early on as a mermaid.
3: Yeah, well, and a cosplayer, too. Um, She's actually been going to conventions with us since she was six months old and probably has as many costumes as I do.
2: Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. You know, one of the things that I remember early on in my exposure to pop culture was that the early families that really got involved in either going to conventions or, or events or going to gaming mm-hmm. things is that it was a family affair. The dads drug the sons and the grandsons down to the gaming, and they get involved, and next thing you know, they're all spending hundreds of dollars on, on parking figurines <laughs> and stuff. And the same was true of cosplay. If If mm-hmm. mom or dad or both got into cosplay, well, then the kids got into it a little bit and they might find their own muse and boom, off they're running. And this
3: mm-hmm. seemed to
2: last several generations. But we're seeing a break here, I've noticed, in the last five, six years. There's been a real discernible break. Um, and as Song was saying early on here, that it seemed to coincide a lot with the downturn in the economy.
3: Um, I have to agree there. I mean, costumes aren't cheap. I'll, I'll outright say I'll spend a couple hundred dollars, you know, in materials, and then hours and hours cutting and sewing and fitting and refitting, and then accessories on top of that. Um, and so, and that's for one costume. So if you're cost, if you're making costumes or buying costumes for an entire family. It, it does add up, and it gets really expensive, and especially in times where the economy is low and people, you know, are putting their money in priorities of food and bills. There's not right. a lot left over to cost to make costumes or get costumes for your right. family,
2: or gaming, or go to conventions, or gaming. Mm-hmm. And I and I think one of the interesting things that I'm beginning to see is is it seems as though. The younger generation of people, in fact, your generation, is looking for places to go. You've got Comic-Con, but it's become such mm-hmm. a candle car these days. I mean, you're in there, you're getting pushed around and bumped and, and jostled. Uh, it's a great con for going to see a lot of these great stars, but I was there last, this last year, and, of course, I'm an old guy, and I like lots of room around and that was mm-hmm. a real big issue for me. But I found that the dealer's room was awesome. There were a lot of cosplays, cosplayers there. There was a lot to see and a lot going on. And I'm wondering if there's room for different kinds of cons because I hear, I see references to Comic-Con all over the place. There's San Diego. There's, there's Phoenix Comic-Con. There's, there's Comic-Cons back east all over the place. But these are big, huge cons with, with uh, for-profit modes, and they're looking to bring in big entertainment venues. But one of the things that I found disconcerting was is that if I went, when I went to Comic-Con, okay, I could go see these people from Babylon 5, but I'm going to stand in line 45 minutes to an hour, mm-hmm. sometimes more. I'm going to get up to the thing. I can say, hi, how are you, sign here, and then they're looking around me to the next person in line. And that kind yeah. of threw me for a loop and there just isn't time. Do you think there's a No, place? there's not
3: time for personal conversations. Um, for like for costumers or for for, for, for costumers,
2: for guests um, do you think there's a place for the smaller con?
3: I think there is. I think the smaller con has a lot of advantages over a bigger con. I, personally, I like a small or a medium-sized con. When I've been to bigger cons, you can't talk to people, you can't make connections, you can't have that. It's just how oh, high, sign something, say hi, mm-hmm. buy something, yeah. move on to the next person. You know, go see this. You miss a lot of stuff with the smaller um, cons. It's more intimate. You get a lot of more. You know, one-on-one. You get to know people and meet people and make connections and make friends. Um, you don't feel so suffocated, you don't feel like someone's gonna bump into you you know and knock you into something every three seconds. Right. but I, I really think the best thing about the small cons is just you, you get a lot of personal interaction, you get mm-hmm. to meet a lot of people and you get to like see them as real people, not just you know five a seconds number and say, or a face. Hi, take a picture yeah, exactly.
2: Well, that's cool. Um, do you see other venues or opportunities? In pop culture today, uh, Song and I talked a bit about music. Uh, we kind of mm-hmm. briefly mentioned the idea of books and movies and TV shows. And the big thing that we've been noticing is a lot of the, the effort to merchandise like Walking Dead. They've got a game. They've got books. They've got comics. The merchandising engine is just lit up like a like a firecracker. Do you see any mm-hmm. of these things coming into play for cosplayers, the conventions, uh, any of the other things that, that you run into when you visit various different events?
3: Um, I mean, I think people put money where money comes in. Um, and right now, the top you know, things in pop culture, I mean, everybody's going to want them in the way that they like. Some people are readers, so they want books or they want comic books. Okay. Some people don't like to read and they like to watch movies, and that's why they watch the movies. And then other people, you know, just like it because everybody else is liking it, so they want to wear the T-shirt. I mean, I think the trends are going to go where the trends go, and they'll, you know, come and go. But I think there'll there'll always be books, and there's always going to be comic books, and there's always going to be art. I mean, Mm because that's the the basis of what this community is built on.
2: Right. Um, Do you think that the model of Comic Con, which is all entertainment, is going mm-hmm. to survive much longer? Because I really wonder about um. that. It's, it's getting so big now, it's, it's hard. And I did an article in the, the Watt newspaper, I think it was a month or so ago, where I asked the question, mm-hmm. is Comic-Con getting too big? Because they've either got, if they're going to grow any bigger, they've got to expand to another venue. And that creates another whole host of issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I can't Um, imagine going to a Comic-Con and have to go across the street to see another part of the convention.
3: You know, Phoenix Comic-Con has kind of that issue. um, I found last year when I went, the main portion of the con was at the convention center, but there were a lot of panels and other little things that were hosted in the ballrooms of the hotels across the street. And so it was kind of crazy... Mm-hmm. I didn't and so it's kind of that. crazy,
0: huh.
3: yeah. And so that was kind of crazy because it's like if you have to go across, um, then like keeps oh, yeah, traffic, traffic, traffic and you've got people light. loitering and yeah. But then just the bigness. I mean, even if you didn't have to cross a street, even if it was just like ballroom connected to ballroom connected to ballroom, it's just right. so big. How can somebody take in that much in a three-day weekend?
2: Right, and I, I've heard some of the same concerns echoed from people who have attended San Diego Comic-Con because they have actually mm-hmm. have expanded in, into other venues uh, for various different things, and it is uh, a challenge to see enough of it uh, to, to feel good about it. Um, and this is one of the, again, pop culture is so dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. We were talking with Song about the various changes in pop culture over the many years, and we can go back, we can trace a lot of it, all the way back to the late 1800s when radio first arrived. And Mm -hmm. it afforded people the opportunity to be entertained and have heroes and and see these things. And then when TV came along, and then when the phonograph record came along, and people could actually be consumers of media and Mm -hmm. pop culture, and then, of course, well, Elvis it, and the Beatles. It, mm-hmm. and I think it was music.
3: back before the radio. I mean, we've had plays and, you know, storytelling from the beginning of time, and I think, you know, as far as recorded history goes. And I think that is the basis of what pop culture is today.
2: Do you think it's about just, the escapism or just the the... The idea of the costume, and I can pretend for a little bit
3: um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there it depends on the person. Some people like the escape, you know life is hard, and some people just uh-huh. like to be able to put themselves in another character and focus on that character instead of what's going on you know, whether works hard or school's hard. But I think right. other people just like to live another life. I mean, that's why we have readers and that's why we have writers, so that you can go and you can experience somebody else's life mm-hmm. without even having to take a step out your front door.
2: You know, it reminds me of an old story or a series of stories, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, required reading mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Um, and again, this man was daydreaming all the time about, being a hero, being saved, all these kind of adventures and stuff like this. And I, I definitely I see that in a lot of cosplay. I also see it in, in some of the things that some of the conventions are bringing into play, the idea of gaming and things like mm-hmm. this. Um, and, again, you've, you've carved yourself out a, a neat niche in the Valley. And I want to say congratulations to you. Thanks for calling oh, and being well, part of you. my first show. This has been fun.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for having me be part of your first show.
2: Awesome. And I look forward to seeing you at Leprechaun in about three and a half weeks, I think it is now.
3: <laughs> I'm excited. Counting down the days. Yeah.
2: Well, we and, and of course, you are going to be coming up in costume, right?
3: I will be coming up in costume. Um, I should be in costume all three days. And then also the little one will be in costume as well, too.
2: I look forward to it. And we will see you right. at Leprechaun. Thanks, Krista.
3: Oh, you're welcome. You have a wonderful night.
2: You too. And folks, you know we're we're just wrapping up our first hour of tonight's uh, um, show. Uh, welcome. We look forward to hearing from you. Do call in. Our number, call in number is uh, 714-242-5145. Feel free to call in. Uh, And chime in, we're wrapping up our our first hour, which talks about, where we talk about, um, boy, (laughs) dead airspace, dead brain, I'm gone. Okay, pop culture and today's world and all of the neat things that are happening. And, you know, just one of the things that I thought was intriguing that I learned in this is the idea that pop culture is not unique to our society today. Pop culture could be traced, as, as our last caller said, Chris Crawford, we can easily trace pop culture, the idea of being a part of the adventures of our heroes or villains, the times that we read great stories, great storytelling, the games, the adventures that we had as kids, or honestly these days as adults. We have a great time. Well, we're going to take just a moment break here. As we get ready for the second half of our show tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, New Space. Uh, And by New Space, for those of you who may not know it yet, there is a lot going on, just as much as there's a lot going on in pop culture these days, uh, with the changes and everything that's going on, there's a lot going on in what we call New Space, which is all of the activity that NASA has been fostering and setting up things so that people can move into space for real. So stay tuned, we'll be back in just a few minutes. That worked well. Leaving the show. I like that. How long does this run?
0: Okay. Yeah, that's, that's all right. How am I
2: doing? I think I, I have a pacing idea. Okay. Um yeah, I don't see anything. All right. What do we got here? 49.50. We got 9 minutes. So what do I do when the music starts to run out? Okay, music is over. Welcome back. Hopefully I've got you on to Wod Radio. We are um, talking about space news tonight. And have I got a bunch for you. We're, we're doing space news and commentary tonight. And uh, welcome to the show for any listeners. I invite you to try calling in and give us a call, let us know what you think about what we're talking about. Uh, guest call in is 714-242-5145. That number for call in, 714-242-5145. Feel free to chime in as we get going and rolling here. There's there's a lot going in, going on in space today. I can remember as a young man many years ago, and well actually as a young boy, sitting in front of the TV Uh, And we had one of the first color TVs on the block when I was a kid. And for those of you who have lived with now flat-screen TVs these days, and LCDs and CCDs and whatever the heck they are these days, there was a time in the dim history of the planet when color wasn't part of the TV broadcast. And NASA, at that time, in Apollo's history... The first man to, land on the, to be on the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, landed on our moon, and I remember recently a conversation with a young young man who we were asking about what he thought of the space program at the time, and at that time, the shuttle was just getting ready to close out its last few flights. They hadn't announced the retirement, and the young man said, well, aren't we already on the moon? And... I just laughed. Um, I was so surprised at the response. And sadly, over the last few years, I've discovered that there's a lot of young people who assume that we've, already, that we've done more than, than Apollo 17. Or was it 16? I can't remember which one was last. I think, I think it was 17. Um, and this is sad, especially with the things that are going on Today, We've got a host of formal commercial launches coming up in just the next couple of years. Virgin Galactic, run by Richard Branson, of uh, Virgin, I mean, Virgin Phones, Virgin Airlines, Virgin, I think he's he's even got a Virgin shipping line, it wouldn't surprise me, um, is running Virgin Galactic, which is a... (laughs) Um, doing, th- getting ready to launch a tourist flight into uh, suborbit, which is about 62 miles up in the high- up in the sky, almost to orbit, and he's going to be launching the the public availability of this just within the next year or two. We've also got uh, Xcor Aerospace uh, here in the western region is also going to be launching their tourist flights as well as satellite launches uh, and small sats, things like this, experiments going into suborbital space. We've also got one of the most prominent that we have these days is SpaceX and they are hoping to launch tomorrow with a booster that they're actually going to try and recover or at least go through part of the recovery process. Something they've been in the process of for several years now in developing a reusable booster that could seriously reduce the cost of getting people and cargo into space. Um, just to get started, we're going to uh, point out a few things that are just in the general news. Uh, for those of you who don't, I draw a lot of my information from several websites. There's uh, space.com. You've got uh, moonandback.com. There's uh, spacenews.com. news.com um, and, oh, there's a host of others. You've got the NASA website, which has a boatload of different things that you can look at. And when we talk about new space today, a lot of people in the news are focused on the three primary people, uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk. you got X-Core and their their team, and you have Virgin Galactic. But there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff going on that's kind of exciting. We've got new information from spacecraft that have gone out to new photos and so forth that have gone out to Jupiter and past that. We've had recent news in, in the past few months of uh, Voyager uh, getting out, and they believe it's actually past the edge of the solar system now, which is way, 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 far away. Uh, it gives whole new meaning to the idea of in a galaxy far away. Um, So uh, hang on. Uh, I'll be doing also some commentary on some of these things tonight. I am a space geek. I probably uh, have grown to become a virulent space geek in some of the strangest ways. So hang on. It's going to be a fun ride. Um, Some of the first things we want to talk about are that uh, a lot of people don't know that the U.S. and Russia are not the only people up in space. Uh, Just this past couple of years... China has joined the group and to the point where they actually put up their own little space station, a single module. They actually had astronauts up there staying for, for a while and came back. They've actually joined this elite group, uh, the United States, Russia, now China. But we also have to remember to include the European Space Agency and uh, somebody who's been launching satellites and so forth for some years now, India. So we've got five um, nations or nation groups that are actually now in, involved in space. And now even so, one of the things that makes new space so intriguing is that there are now commercial, privately owned companies doing uh, commercial launches, uh, satellites, other than government-sponsored programs. And typically here in the U.S., we know about uh, Boeing and and uh, oh gosh, what are they like Lockheed Martin that are part of what's called the United Launch Alliance central central deal that helps manage most of the domestic launches here in the United States for everything from satellites to cargo um, that goes to the ISS and all that kind of good stuff. Now, feel free, folks, if if I trip on myself, do a misstep, and I get something wrong, call in and let me know. I'm looking forward to the banter and to, to get it all squared away and make sure everybody knows about it. But I think one of the things that we miss when we look at all of our news is that there's not a whole lot of commentary in the news. And this is a discussion of things that sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And one of the things that My own pet peeves is that we put a lot of satellites up in orbit. In just the number of years since Sputnik hit orbit in 1957, we've got over, I think the last number I heard was over 200,000 pieces of space junk up there. And by space junk, we're not counting the satellites. We're not counting operational satellites, of which there are things like constellations of satellites like iridium, which is, I'm not sure what Iridium was, but I think it was like a, a, a cell phone or a content-providing pro- uh, constellation. You've got GPS satellites up there that do a whole boatload of things. Um, and, of course, then there's the communication satellites. Uh, we've got navigation and weather satellites. We've got geology satellites up there doing things, that looking at the ground and all of this kind of neat stuff. So there's, there's a boatload of stuff going on up in space that we down here just literally don't even know about. Um, and so that's what this show is about, to talk about what these things are, to try and educate the public, but more importantly, to generate dialogue. One of the things that I have found personally that I feel is absolutely lacking is – informed dialogue, and this is about looking forward to what we might see. We have in our place, in the world today, we've got movies, we've got science fiction stories, we've got steampunk stories about people doing things on other planets, in other timelines, and all this science stuff is really cool because it fires our imagination. But I'll tell you, I'm beginning to wonder as I look around at the world today. I remember a comment by somebody and uh, just recently on Facebook where this individual was berating the cancellation of the space shuttle and that we were going backwards to the tube and capsule launchers uh, similar to Apollo. And you know, his argument revolved around the reusability point. And he also tried to make the point that, or offer the point that the shuttle didn't really need to be retired. Well, understand that a couple of years back, I put a little slide presentation together for me and a few friends and uh, quickly got trounced because I hadn't done my homework. Uh, I had proposed that we should take the space shuttle and we should send it over to lunar orbit. makes a lot of sense to me, or at least it did at the time, until I started looking at some of the structural aspects of the shuttle. I looked at its age. I learned about how the stresses that it would need, the fact that it would need in order to do that trip, it would have to carry that great big huge orange. And why on earth did they color the dang thing orange uh, fuel tank? All the way to lunar orbit, the the amount of fuel they would burn to get that heavy, huge airplane over to lunar orbit, and then what do you do when you get it there? Uh, my original idea was you, you strap on three or four Soyuz bolted to the wings, and throw uh, a big habitat in the cargo thing, and then drop it all on the moon. Well, little did I know about uh, delta v and and cargo, and 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 home and transfers, and all these other neat little important details that you got to know about when trying to send this massive hollow metal off to another celestial object. But I tell you, you know, in the last three years, I've learned a lot, nowhere near enough to be a rocket scientist or caused called one. But I've learned enough that I've begun to to question some of the things that we're being told. Um, here's a little tidbit for you. This, the, the International Space Station, it's, it's a little over 20 years old, I think, now. Um, the shuttle was used to assemble all the, most of the modules, except those the Russians put up. Uh, and it's a huge, huge thing, even though it's just barely the size of a football field. And you've got, uh, I think it's six people crammed into this space. Um, We've seen a lot of the videos that show people taking tours, doing experiments. Um, I really loved the one where the guy, the one astronaut, did the demonstration where he opens a a bag, a washcloth. He takes a washcloth, fills it full of water, and then in front of the camera, he squeezes the water out of the washcloth, and you see this water um, literally crawl across his hands onto his arm. And it was weird. It reminded me of a horror flick I've seen before where the fog or the goo or whatever it is crawls up the, the, the what do we call it, the victim's arm, legs, or neck. And it was just weird. But on the one hand, I sit and I think, okay, well, yeah, that's really cool. That really behaves the way that somebody envisioned or imagined it years ago for whatever this horror flick was. And I've seen it many other times. Uh, we had, we've had several films where astronauts gone to the moon, gone to Mars, and this goo starts sliding up their leg. And it was really interesting to see that experiment on the ISS show that the surface tension of the water causes it to stay close together and to almost kind of sort of congeal, but follow his hand and stay on his skin. And that was just weird. That was just weird. But it reminded me that there are aspects where we're not looking outside the box. And I don't think we're pushing the limits as much as we were before now the, yeah spacex x core um even even um okay uh the Cygnus craft that goes up to supply the space station these are all um extreme engineering you gotta call it that it really is extreme engineering they're going into a foreign air foreign space. They've got to survive for the, the tour that they're going to do, and, and then they're sent down to burn up in the atmosphere, and I've got to tell you, i got a problem with that one. I really got a problem with that one. Uh, but before we get to that, let's look at some of the goings-on that are happening. The biggest news, I think, is the fact that SpaceX is going to be launching tomorrow. In fact, I was looking at uh, their website and a couple of others. Uh, NASA and SpaceX made the formal announcement that launch as of tonight is go for tomorrow. So they're going to be sending their fourth mission to the i s s uh cargo parts supplies experiments uh food air air food, and water all sorts of stuff going up in the uh dragon with its trunk and and cargo and they're doing a couple of neat things this time um, they've put in some new pieces into the trunk uh that are uh that they hadn't done before, so that's exciting to see how well that works out um, We've also got some interesting thing on um Uh, what was it, Virgin Galactic, did, uh, Virgin Galactic had some test flights recently uh, that uh, they've been working through. In fact, their whole test flight regimen testing, they finished uh, preparing uh, White Knight 2, the mothership, and they've been testing the actual uh, Virgin Galactic ship herself, uh, which is really exciting because that means that we're hopefully looking for sometime next year the launch of their commercial program to start putting people up into suborbit. So that's going to be really exciting. Now, they've also um, interesting things in, in the Senate and so forth. There's news today that uh, the Senate subcommittee for the FAA passed a bill allowing the FAA to issue permits and licenses for vehicles and space planes. And this specifically uh, impacts x Aerospace and Virgin Galactic so that they can have their licenses and all their Stuff in order for the for the government bureaucrat bean counters so that they can actually take passengers up into space. And it's really interesting because when we look back at how um, aerospace um, airliners and things like that got started, we didn't have a lot of this uh, regulatory oversight in those days, and i and I can remember reading in the history books how many planes and a lot of uh, what they called barnstormers. Used to stop in small towns, pick up people, take them up on flights, and we had a lot of uh, planes that just really weren't safe at the time. But we needed them back then. Now, nowadays, we have the FAA, we've got uh, NASA, we've got all sorts of uh, regulatory guidelines that help us uh, plan and provide for the safety of passengers going into space. And it's exciting seeing this whole new. Uh, arena develop on top of a lot of the stuff that we see in the airline industry. Um, Another new piece of news that was interesting is uh, the Dream Chaser uh, aircraft from Sierra Nevada has signed an agreement that they can be hosted out at the Houston Spaceport. And this is really cool because we've got uh, Spaceport America. You've now got the Houston Spaceport uh, is starting to line up things. And uh, I believe – no, I can't say. I don't remember. I, I thought there was another one that I'm missing. I'll have to do the research on that for our next show. Um, but it's really exciting that these spaceports are beginning to take uh, more of a, a role in what's going on and, and to begin to get the word out about what's happening and what's going on at their different spaceports. Um, there's also some interesting things. Uh, there's some tax breaks going on in California, where they're hoping to keep a lot of the space companies there in California, so that they can do um, keep the employees, the employment, the companies there, so they can keep things in the economy uh, on track or actually begin to see it uh, improving. Um, on the um, on some other news, well, Cyrus Rex lot of stories uh, about what OSIRIS-REx is getting ready for um, their build-up and ready to go ahead and move forward on the development. Um, first mission to collect samples from an asteroid. So that's going to be interesting as that gets out. That actually is going to be real interesting, and I'm sure a lot of the asteroid mining groups are watching that one, uh, so that they can look at uh, how they can then, commercial enterprises can move forward with that. Um, the uh, I remember seeing something about a parachute from NASA. Here it is. Um, there's a video on uh, moon and back that talks about uh, LDSD. It's basically the break from Mars. Uh, supersonic speed parachute. Now, this is a big thing because when these craft come into the atmosphere, at these super high speeds, they've got to have a way to slow down. So these parachutes and the development of these things is really critical, especially when we look at uh, sending people to Mars and moving forward on that. Out on the ISS, um, they're looking at uh, enhancing some of the, the things uh, in orbit. They're hoping to have some lettuce. So now, you know, we, we go to the grocery store, we get lettuce every day, but sometimes we seem, we forget because the ISS has been up there so long that the astronauts don't get a lot of fresh food. Um, they're looking for fresh lettuce and soon they're going to have the chance to grow it themselves. Uh, NASA's sending a mini farm up there and, uh, hopefully it'll go up on this next SpaceX deal. Um. Of course, uh, the uh, the SpaceX ship's been on the launch pad for a while, um, and that's going to be exciting. Uh, Mars makes its closest approach to Earth in six years, Monday, ahead of the lunar eclipse. Uh, For a lot of Mars fans, this is going to be real important, especially because you can see it. It's bigger, a lot of good astronomy going on uh, this month. Total lunar eclipse. Now, I've never been a fan of lunar eclipses. You know, I just, working in the dark, there's only one thing I really do working in the dark. Astronomy's not it. But, you know, I have to admit, i got to love a lot of the pictures they do come up with, because they come up with some awesome stuff. There was a neat picture I saw, I think I saw it on Facebook today. Uh, somebody was touting the aspect that military photographers have done some awesome photographs. And i got to tell you, the picture they showed huge, gorgeous uh, starfield in the background. And two guys, I swear they looked like freaking weird, glow-eyed aliens standing there with a starfield behind them, but it was an awesome photograph. <coughs> Neat stuff going on in space these days. Um, a lot of things that people can find out about stuff on, uh, like I mentioned, the, the uh, uh, Moon and Back, you got Space News, you've got uh, Space.com, there's SpaceNews.com. There's a lot of places that you can get information like this. But here's the thing. All this stuff is, it's pull technology. In the, in the web, we have a term of push technology. Why did it get stopped? What was that? What was that? Huh? You did what? Oh, okay. Okay. That was a surprise to me. I'm a new host. Welcome, guys. Anyway. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of places to get stuff on the web. But here's the thing: most of it's most of it's pull technology. In other words, what we mean by that on the web is is that you have to have to actually have to go there to find out about it. And one of the things that I've always really been frustrated with is there's there's not much in the way of push technology. Um, I haven't seen, and of course, I'm still struggling to get my mind wrapped around the idea of uh, Facebook pages for a lot of these places. But, you know, I, I've, I've uh, been on Facebook now for, for a few years. and gotten the hang of things. And, oh, I've got groups that I, I watch, uh, Jovian Society, Titan, Moon of Saturn, Space Colonization. There's a Liftport group out there. Um, there's, uh, gosh, do-it-yourself, biodomes, not don't remember what that's about, but it looked interesting at the time. Uh, space colonization, uh, we got got loads of stuff going on. I know there are people working on the ideas of space elevators, there's people working on nuclear power, although NASA pretty much cut a lot of that down the last little bit when their uh, ASRG program was uh, closed down and shuttered. Um, Which is sad, because the uh, ASRGs, that's, um, what was that? That was um, radio, let's see, RTG, I, I was saying it wrong, RTG, radiothermic generators. I don't think I'm getting it right still. Basically, it's a chunk of radioactive material put inside this generator, and you got a bunch of thermocouples all the way around it, and those thermocouples take that heat and convert it into electricity. And they generate watts or multiple watts of electricity for the various satellites on which they're installed on. And NASA's used these things, RTGs, for many years. Um, and in fact, something a lot of people didn't know, is um, Russia has used these along their coast. They were used to power lighthouses. Um, they were used to power oceanographic Uh, devices and sensors, Uh, and it's it's been interesting when I started doing some of the research on these things, but NASA was looking at an advanced radiothermic generator and it seemed like in some of the documentation they were making some real good progress. Uh, They were looking at generating hundreds of watts instead of just watts. But they ended up closing the program and I gotta admit that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if their goal is to ultimately make a trip to Mars because you know if you're going to have to haul an acre of solar panels in order to provide power we got a problem Um, I've seen cost figures for a Mars trip in the tens of billions uh, of cost and and that doesn't always include what NASA spent on SLS and the Orion to date which Again, it seems kind of weird. But it's progress, I guess. I don't know. We'll have to find out as time goes on. I really think that there is a disconnect between what NASA wants to do and what they're actually achieving. We've gotten into such a bureaucratic nightmare with NASA as an agency that I truly believe that they're holding us back. There are ways that we can fund and finance things. There are ways that we could take people into space. There are ways that we can do a lot of what needs to happen to put people in space long term. Um, I watched with interest a video just the other day, uh, right around the 14th or 15th, there was a panel presentation sponsored where we had uh, who was it? It was Paul Spudis, Mayim, who was that? Darn, I can't remember that. Um, and also a gentleman from Bigelow representing a legal outlook. And they talked about property rights. They talked about some of the new science that's uh, making its way into the pipeline. Uh, they talked about the idea of uh, in situ resource utilization ISRU uh, and all these different things. But, again, I, I look at the engineers and I watch them talk about this, and it's dry. It is dry, and I mean desert dry. Now, that kind of desert dry, math and uh, showing slides from fantastically Industrialized um, space colonies, either in orbit or on the moon. Pardon me. Space bubbles. space bubbles. Oh yeah, don't don't even get me started on space bubbles. Um. <laughs> oh, my my producer here, the engineer here, is just giving me fits there. But the time has come, literally and long past, for things to begin happening. I remember, and, and many of you will probably laugh with me, when I recall in the early parts of the film Starship Troopers, we have this uh, um, kind of background sound of a citizen uh, do things for the state where you go out, you serve your time as a, what was a Starship Trooper. You are in citizenship, you can vote, there was the war with the bugs, uh, this constant drone. Now many of us uh, who have lived long enough to remember dimly the aftermath of World War II or perhaps the um, living through Vietnam, we understood how the state can become so centralized that it controls everything, it propagandizes everything, and pushes us, the people, into doing things. But while that's true, and while that's, I agree, that's not a good thing, there are aspects to what Starship Troopers portrayed that actually has value and that we in our capitalistically degenerate ways can take advantage of. Um, I'm often saddened by NASA's feeble attempts on rare occasions once in a great, 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 great while to merchandise anything. We live in a pop culture world. And in a pop culture world, people want to be entertained. They want to connect. And NASA's not connecting with the people. I remember uh, I put an essay together some months, years ago, where I talked in general details about how when the Apollo program fired up, everybody was all hot and bothered about it. And you had the test pilots. Of course, before that, we had the monkeys. Um, And then we had the test pilots. And then we had astronauts, real-life astronauts, John Glenn, Buzz Aldrin, the guys we remember. um, And, of course, Buzz is still around. We really like him. Um, And I really i hope he makes it to Mars. And I think there's a chance that he can but not under NASA's watch. Not going to happen. I love the the news that we've got. You know, when when Mars One came out, uh, Dennis Tito, I think, was was that Mars One? I think that was Mars One. No, Inspiration Mars. Was it? I can't remember. Inspiration Mars, Mars One, we got uh, the Mars Direct Program, which I think was a a NASA uh, idea or program, Um, supported a lot by the Mars Society and Dr. Zubrin. We've got all sorts of stuff that's in the background. But, you know, I came late to space advocacy. And in the process of coming late to space advocacy, I had a big hill to climb in order to get somewhat versed in what is happening in its history. I joined the Moon Society about six years ago. And was five years ago and was active in the establishment of a local chapter here in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, uh, and I remember we were all uh, excited and, and so forth, and there were, there were a good handful of us, maybe six to ten. And every once in a while we'd get more than ten, and sometimes we'd drop down to two or three of the meetings. But I think in a new chapter of any organization, that's kind of how it works. But we would banty about different things, and and we were all about educating, and we'd have tables up at different conventions, and we'd show the tried and true 30-year-old documentation about the geology of the moon and different landing sites and all the fancy artist representations of lunar rovers with astronauts riding around in them and rocket-powered shuttlecraft and things going in, in lunar orbit but, you know, <clears throat> one big thing that kept coming back to me, we see a lot of art uh, about O'Neill colonies fully formed and functioning in either Earth orbit or at a LaGrange Point. We see a lot of art of lunar colonies fully functioned and fully operating. We see a lot of art about Martian colonies. We see a lot of art about mining operations on asteroids, um, but, you know, I haven't seen anything anywhere. And then maybe if, if somebody's seen some of this, send me some images uh, uh, and show me where people are looking at the pioneers that lived there the first time. And what kind of tech or low tech that they're going to take to actually set the beachhead. As this program continues over the coming weeks we're going to be looking at in my commentary not just the news that's out there but I'm going to be digging in and looking at and trying to find what is everybody doing to actually get people boots on the ground. Now keep in mind I'm not talking about astronauts. I admire the astronauts the the sometimes as long as a decade to train for a single mission that they go through and the efforts that they make to learn every possible which way that it could fail and how to counter that. And that's admirable. But practically, when we start sending people out to live on the moon and Mars, and uh, heaven forbid, let's go to uh, to Jupiter's uh, Callisto. And from Callisto, let's drop down into Ganymede. And from Callisto, let's hop over to Titan. Those aren't short trips, I know. But here's a question. One of the things that I've heard recently in the last year or two is that NASA doesn't have a long-term set set of goals to move into space. And the reality is I don't think they can. Not because of congressional oversight and meddling, not because of bureaucratic crap, not because they don't have enough money, not because they don't have enough engineers to figure it out, but because NASA is an exploration agency. That was and always has been their mandate. They can't do settlement. They're not organized to process tens or thousands or, or millions of people out to settlement colonies. That's not their mandate. So anybody that tries to tell me that NASA is going to do that for us, well, they, they just don't know what they're, what they're talking about. So does that mean there's going to be some immigration organization set up or emigration organization set up by the United States or Russia or the European Union or, heaven forbid, even China? Yeah. Collectively, not on your life. National boundaries, national nationalism being what it is, uh-uh. I don't even think the United Nations has enough clout to try and build something like this. It's going to have to be grassroots. It's going to have to be the people like they responded to the Inspiration Mars. 400,000 people the last time I read an article. Of course, that could have been exaggerated. But I do know I did read somewhere where they received in excess of 200,000 applications to go on a one-way trip to another planet. Sight and seen. Now, that's got to tell you something about the ideas that people have about where we ought to be headed. There was a thing I learned uh, in sales many, many years ago. And the person told me it was called the rule of tens. When you have an idea, a business idea, and you want to get out and you reach the people, you start with 1,000 people. And the general rule goes something like this. It's just a layer of 10%. 10% of the people you start out with are going to be receptive to your message. Okay? So that leaves us with 100 people. 10% of that 100 people are actually going to have an interest and want to act on that idea. They they might just purchase a model. They might buy a raffle ticket. They might uh, send you a $10 donation. Now, of that 100 people who have an interest and are willing to act on it, you're going to get 10% are going to actually be willing to follow through to whatever they're going to be. They're actually going to send you the check. You'll actually receive a check. You'll have a receipt. You'll have to send them. Which means out of 1,000 people, one person is likely to actually act on what you're proposing. Now, if we reverse this and suggest and apply a rule of tens to just the 200,000, and those 200,000 actually acted on the idea of going to Mars. Well, if we ramp that up, there are at least 200,000. No, no, we were at 200,000. There's 2 million people out there that are interested in what's going on just on Mars alone. And of those 2 million people interested in, in sending somebody to Mars, there's two, 20 million that would at least be willing to follow it. And who knows? We could convert a few of those. Those are huge numbers. 20 million people interested in seeing us get to Mars. That is just incredible to me. And that's only three layers. You can't tell me that there isn't the potential for an upswelling, that there isn't the potential for a large volume of support in putting people, human boots with feet in them, on another planet, on a moon, on an asteroid. And as I get ready to close tonight, my commentary... I want to let you know I've I've been working on a book. I met Rick Tomlinson at Space Access a few years ago. Well, several years ago, actually. And at the time, I had my little slide presentation. I was really proud of this thing. And it was the shuttle, and it, it shows the ideas of how to take the shuttle to the moon and the external tank. And I had this little lander, and I really had some real cute little drawings. It was kind of fun. And so I, I catch Mr. Tomlinson in the hallway, And um, I started to hand him my little slideshow presentation printed out. on on, It was was printed in color. I mean, I was so proud of this. And I handed it to Mr. Tomlinson. He he glanced at the front. And now, mind you, he was very respectful. And I really appreciated this from him, uh, especially since over the the years as I looked at that. And I look back at it now, and I think, oh, was I so stupid. Um, In the course of the conversation, He didn't let me give him my presentation, and I thank him for that. Um, He told me that if I've got an idea, and I'm really passionate about that idea, I want to generate some credibility so I can share that idea and make some progress. He said there's one thing I had to do, and that was to write a book. Get the idea written down in a form that I can get it out into the public's hands And present the concepts. And, of course, anybody that writes a book, if you've ever written a book before, and I've written three, it's not easy. Formulating your concepts, getting the things, doing the research, finding out that, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, NASA wrote a paper back in the 80s. that Yeah, the space space shuttle could actually go to the moon. It could make orbit. They actually did a study. And they calculated that there are actually two different trajectories that they could use to put the shuttle into orbit around the moon. But I got to tell you, when I read farther down in that report after I found, and this was, I found this report after I had actually met with uh, Mr. Tomlinson, he told me to write the book, I found out just how much fuel that would actually require. And it's just, I mean, it, it, it makes the SLS look like a firecracker. I mean, it's just, it was huge. It was ridiculously huge. Uh, And, of course, then when I realized how much fuel that would require, then I realized how you'd have to get that up into orbit. The space shuttle can't can't carry a full tank to orbit. It can carry an empty one, not a full one. But it did get me thinking. And so I started the book. And, um, oh, okay. Um, It got me thinking, and I started rethinking how would we actually make a long-term plan for long-term settlement within the solar system? It's not enough to think about going to the moon. It's not enough to think about going to Mars. It's not enough to decide or consider what do we do when we, leave, when we want to leave Mars, where do we go? It's not enough. If we're going to proceed and move into space as a species, we cannot follow in the spits and spurts and single-mission methodologies and mindset that NASA has done for 40 years. Not going to work. We've got to embrace the idea that these rocks that we're going to go visit are barren, every one of them. They're basically barren. We have to assume that. We've got to have a methodology that when we land on the moon, we need to apply a methodology that's going to let us dig in a beachhead that allows us to build a biome where we can survive in a shirt-sleeve environment, that we can add people we can add plants, we can eventually add animals into that biome, that that lunar biome has to be able to be economically as well as survivably independent. You can't just send a tin can there, stick it in the ground, bury it with regolith, and, and figure that's a settlement. That's not a settlement. And Bigelow in this presentation panel I saw the other day, talked about property rights. It's definitely going to have to be addressed. But is that for an Earth-bound government to decide? Or is it for the group that's actually going to be there on the ground on the moon? And what happens when we get to Mars? Or further, yet, we get out to Callisto or the other moons of Jupiter or moon of Saturn, Titan. We got that far. Who's going to try and enforce property rights on a moon around another planet that you got to travel, what, two, three years to get to? The guy you're going to enforce upon, say you're going to serve a, a warrant or something on him, three years you're going to wait to get there? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I truly believe, folks, that the single greatest challenge we we face in the space cro- program, I'm watching down here, is the idea that we're barking up the wrong tree, folks. I'm wrapping up production on a book that I'll be releasing in the next month or two. We got to get all the pictures and the copyright references and all of the technical details have to be pulled together. But I'll be sharing with you pieces of that plan as we go forward on this show and talking about how, what NASA, what Virgin, what x what all of these different companies, even companies like Maston and uh, ULA and, and Roscosmos and, and China and India, they're all, they all want to work in that direction, but nobody's embraced a vision. And you know, for all the respect I have for Buzz Aldrin, I got a lot of. I mean, this is this is one of the few men on the planet who's been to space enough that he set foot on another world. This guy knows what he's talking about. But you know, he had a great idea twice now that I can recall for space raffle. But either he couldn't find people to help him support it, or the people he had depended on to follow through didn't follow through. Because those space raffles, dismal failures in my mind. I I, I tried, I thought it was an awesome idea, but nothing ever happened. And what's up with that? His new book, Vision for Space, something rather, Vision for Space. It's an interesting read. but it's an engineer's take on humans going to to space. It's generalized. The specifics he does talk about are um, towing the line on NASA's uh, techniques and technology. There's, um, and like most presentations from the engineering teams They're forgetting that it's the people that want to go. The astronauts want to go, but if you go through the astronaut program, you are tied lock, stock, and barrel to toe the line. You follow mission protocols, mission goals. Yeah, you might get a chance to do some sightseeing every once in a while. But NASA's mandates, all of them, the many mandates that they are hobbled with prevents NASA and most of the engineers from being able to think outside the box, to be able to look at how commercial companies solve problems in the world today in order to run a business, in order to move forward and grow, in order to develop a community Beyond the Earth's atmosphere. The lessons we need to look at are not, first and foremost, are not going to be in NASA's closets, file cabinets, or the engineers' mines. They're going to be in the engineers working in mining on Earth. How do they build a cave? How do they then turn around and seal that cave? How do we build habitats, either in that cave or on the surface, of another world. Well, you build, talk to a contractor. He knows how to look at logistics. A contractor knows how to work with supplies, demands, schedules. Yeah, we got logistical people in NASA, but they're tied to the government pipeline. Cost plus. Doesn't work. You've got to be adaptive, and this is something that NASA has worked itself into a whole not to be. But I'm not bashing NASA. I want to make sure everybody's clear of that. NASA is probably the greatest exploration agency we've ever seen. They have met their, their challenges, uh, sending guys to the moon, not once, not twice, but several times. This is incredible. We got people in the space station, the shuttle. These are huge engineering successes. But I got to tell you, getting people to live in space long term is not about engineering anymore. We've solved the engineering problems of booster launch from Earth. We solved the engineering issues of surviving in microgravity. We've solved the engineering and physical physics uh, equations in order to get us through home and transfers and trajectories to get us to the moon, to Mars, to Saturn, Euro, Jupiter. We have solved the technical issues. Now it's time to prepare these so that the people can move out and beyond the Earth's atmosphere, so that we can begin to emigrate, to build homes, to build businesses beyond Earth's atmosphere. This is not about setting up a research station on the moon or Mars. This is about putting people there who can support the researchers that will expand our universe far beyond the, what, uh, I think a 1,000, 100,000 light years, 10,000 light years, I can't remember. A big article the other day that, that where they, they adjusted the calculation and discovered we can... What was that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a crop load of space, as my engineer is stating. And we just doubled it the other day. They figured out how they can see twice as far or realized that they were seeing twice as far. I can't remember which one was. But this is awesome. And as we move out into space, the universe is going to get bigger. And I've got to tell you, I, 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 I cannot in my mind's eye, wrap my mind around the idea that if you put settlers on the moon, and then from the moon you settle Mars, and from Mars you settle Callisto, and from Callisto you settle Ganymede, and then from Callisto you head out to Titan, by the time we get to Titan, 50, 60 years from now, I'll bet you, I'll bet you that by the time we hit Mars or Callisto, that we will have figured out the engineering challenges to be able to cross the distances between solar systems. Maybe not galaxies, definitely solar systems. And that some of these exoplanets we've been finding lately, and the moon they spotted the other day, that these can become new destinations. So long as we are trapped by our assumptions and by the fear of letting people experience the frontier that is space. So long as we're trapped by these limitations, we will never, never homestead or settle space anywhere. Not settlements in orbit, not settlements on the moon, and sure as hell not settlements on Mars or beyond. It's time for a paradigm shift like the paradigm shift that happened in the 1600s, And push the pilgrims to the new world. Like the paradigm shift that happened in the United States that pushed homesteaders west from the eastern colonies. We need a paradigm shift, guys. Instead of fighting amongst ourselves in planetary moon and Mars societies, we need to start coming together. Come up with a single plan that achieves every group's dreams not a Mars direct, but a Mars via the moon in a business way, a business plan that gets us there, making money along the way so that we can pay for and support the colonies that come after. Supply lines from Earth won't do it, guys. Settlements, the only way to go. And on that note, well, thank you for joining me tonight. We'll follow the same program line each night that we get together. I look forward to seeing you next week as we come back and discuss pop culture in our first hour. And then we discuss space and new space and news and what the future holds. Thanks for joining us tonight, folks. Don Jacques signing off. Have a good night. K-WOD Radio serving you. And keep your eyes in the sky, guys, because that's where it's going. How'd I do? Yeah.